This is the Fertility Hour, where couples learn how to improve their fertility naturally. Join Charlene Lincoln as she interviews leading experts in the fields of natural fertility, holistic medicine, and preconception care. Fertility Hour is where you'll find evidence-based strategies, tips, and resources to help you when trying to conceive. And now, here's Charlene Lincoln. Okay, uh, welcome back to another episode of the Fertility Hour. And um, before I forget, I want to ask for your support. Um, We have now been searching the world for top experts um, to bring to you you know, the best information, practical, functional, integrative, um, you know, we hope that you're really getting benefit from it because we're here for you. So, you know, what you can do is support us by subscribing, give us a positive review, um, or, you know, any, um, any constructive feedback you'd like to give. Hopefully it's positive. But anyways, um, please subscribe. We appreciate it so much. So today I'm honored to have um, naturopathic physician Rachel Arthur. Rachel is a respected and widely published Australian naturopath specializing in integrative nutrition with over 20 years experience in both the clinical clinic and the classroom. Rachel has become a leading nutritional educator, delivering postgraduate training and mentoring to allied healthcare professionals and doctors alike. She has carved out a career as a diagnostic detective, piecing together all the clues from a person's health history with an advanced understanding of pathology, interpretation, and biochemistry to form a coherent explanation and blueprint for individualized management. Notorious for thinking truly outside the box and helping the the progress of integrative medicine by challenging outdated ideas and introducing new ones that are backed by better scientific evidence. Regularly asked to speak at key conferences and contribute work to authoritative texts, all the while still maintaining her private practice. Rachel's ongoing enthusiasm for integrative health and for education um, make her presentations both inspiring and empowering experiences for attendees and attract wonderful feedback. And, um, and I guess her 18 year old twins think she's pretty cool too. And she did not um, pay me to say that they, they actually do think that. <laughs> are they, are they twin boys, girls, fraternal twins? I've, I've got a boy and a girl. Oh, nice. Jackpot. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's <laughs> Okay. Well, thanks so much for being here. So, um, you know, honestly, I interviewed, um, uh, a medical doctor, and he's renowned for his research with iodine therapy. But it kind of then left. I mean, he did a wonderful job, and and I love the interview. But it's sort of a controversial subject um, here in America. And I was listening to another interview you did, I think, for FX Medicine, and you, I guess you were saying the same for in Australia. Um, it left a lot of questions, and then. Um, of course, I loved a guinea pig on myself. I started taking, you know, 30 to 50 milligrams of iodine. And then I took um, a thyroid, I had my thyroid worked up. And the first thing that the clinician said to me was, are you taking high dose iodine? I said, yes, I am. Well, because that's why your TSH is almost at five. 
So yeah. then I was like, okay, I think I need to ask, I need to have another conversation. And um, because everyone's reading, a lot of people have read David Brownstein's book and have looked at the research from um, Dr. George Fletches, who I interviewed. And there's a lot of information out there. And so I need to kind of disseminate <laughs> the truth. I don't want to lead people down the wrong path, you know? Um, yeah. And there's a lot of people with Hashimoto's and there's, and, and then lastly, if you go on forums like Cure Zone, and if, if you love Cure Zone, I love it too, but and so don't, you know, attack me on this, but there are some people on there and they're ditching out advice as if they're doctors. And I know they're, they're, they're living the experience and whatever, but I think they're, they potentially could get people into a lot of trouble yeah. um, who are dealing with health issues. So anyways, um, let's talk about iodine. It's an, it's, it's an important essential nutrient, right? We can, we can agree on that. We can, we can start from there. I, okay. I, think, that, I think that there's a couple of points that you just touched on that are really pertinent, that are really important to me. And I've been re working in iodine for, you know, I can't remember when I first had to do my, my chapter on iodine in one of those authoritative texts. It was probably about, hmm, how old were my twins? It was probably about uh, uh, 12 years ago, 16 years, uh, 13 years ago. And so when I was looking at iodine, I was thinking, yes, okay, it's this incredibly essential mineral that probably hasn't been given enough attention, certainly not in mainstream medicine when you understand the weight of its responsibilities, so to speak. But I do think that the what what has unfolded really in the last thirteen years since I you know did that first literature review is kind of this overzealousness, you know, this over enthusiasm around iodine, and we have seen a kickback, and we've seen it on a global level. And I can talk to you about some of the. Um, population studies from Greece and Turkey that have shown with iodine fortification, they've had increased rates of thyroid disorders, which is sad because it was, you know, came out of a good place. They were trying to correct a deficiency in their population. And I can talk to you about it from a one-on-one -on -one level where I do see patients in my practice who have done the Brownstein approach, who have mm -hmm done that approach and, and been under the care of a physician that specialises in that approach and done very, very badly, as you say. So I, I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all. I think that we need to be... I, I often talk about that the thyroid is very delicate. And if we go about treating it with a sledgehammer, no matter what that hammer is, whether it's iodine or something else, we're going to get a backlash. We're going to get problems. And so I think it just requires, as you said, a bit more um, thought and a bit more reflection and pulling apart all that information and saying, well, if iodine, then who, then when, and at what sort of doses? Mm -hmm. Okay. I mean, that makes sense. Because yeah. um, there's people online saying when, when people have um, negative symptoms from it. Oh, you're just dumping halogens out of yes. your system. And that's, that's, you know, a Hexamer reaction and just keep going with it. So, and, you know, I mean, um, I, I definitely want to touch on the studies, but uh, I definitely want to keep it, you know, very kind of practical because at the end of the day, um, um, women are going to be listening and going, well, I was told that I probably should, it should have iodine in my diet. And yeah. 
you should, but like at what dosage and, and yeah. why are people yeah. talking about these higher dosage? And some people do have, to be fair, some people do quite well. I mean, because a woman wrote this book about it, that people were having this like kind of magical uh, turnaround in their health at like 30 milligrams, like hormone receptors became more active and things like that. So that sort of, you're like, gosh, I want that, you know? Yeah. Maybe, maybe I, I I'm one of those people that could have that. <laughs> but I, I know it's, yeah, I think I think that we keep going back to you know you you could say the same for most nutrients you know that mm. that uh, you know IV vitamin C some people have all the lights go on with IV vitamin C yeah. you know there there are so many scenarios but clearly there's not a one size fits all it, it's about really um, individualized treatment which is about naturopathic care full stop um and really understanding that um uh, more is not always better and in fact in the case of iodine there are some situations where people do well on milligram doses and we can talk about that um and how to pick those people but the majority actually need microgram doses they need very okay. small amounts because of the delicacy of this gland you know mm-hmm Mm-hmm. Um, but that then begs the question, but they, they say that iodine is needed not just by the thyroid, but by the ovaries, by many. Yeah. So then isn't that what's causing, um, isn't that sort of the argument of why our body needs higher doses? Because it's not just well, the... This is a great question, you know, and this is undoubtedly where a lot of the interest comes from. So if we can just go back and explain something really simply... The thyroid has this capacity to trap iodine from the blood supply that's passing through. And its capacity to do this is because of a very specialized doorway. Imagine that it's, you know, it's a real trap door that brings in the iodine at, at extraordinary amounts. So your gland contains 80% of the iodine in your entire body, or it should do. And so we've always kind of over-focused you know, and gone, well, iodine's just about the thyroid, right? End of story. Um, you know, because the, uh, the thyroid shows this trapping capacity and you can't make thyroid hormone without it. So from a very reductionistic point of view, that, that's, a, you know, the whole level of interest has been focused there. What was then kind of discovered, and this is often the way in nutrition that starts to open up people's minds about broader roles, is that this trapping capacity was actually shown in about four other tissues. And everybody goes, oh, what are those other tissues? And they are ovaries, breast, yeah, mm -hmm. uh, skin, and your stomach. You know, these are, the, these are the major ones. And so quite rightly, it piques our interest where we go, what is iodine doing there? it clearly has other roles beyond thyroid hormone production. It clearly has importance and value to those tissues. We don't entirely understand it. In the case of breast, we mostly understand that. The reason why the breast tissue can trap iodine and it only develops this capacity in late pregnancy, of course, is to supply the breast milk mm. with iodine. This does not mean that's the end of that story for the breast. And we can talk a little bit about that. So when we look at women 
and their breast tissue abnormalities, you know, often there is a, an association or there's a line in the sand that we can draw between women who have been pregnant and women who haven't. So, for example, we know that women who haven't been pregnant have increased rates of breast cancer and a couple of other breast pathologies. One of the linking keys in there is, or one of the questions that's come up since the late 1800s, really, is, is the connection between breast tissue pathology and, you know, this, have you been pregnant, haven't you been pregnant, actually, this iodine, this ability to trap iodine, because you only develop that in late pregnancy in order to fuel the iodine supply to the breast milk. So there's, I mean, the conversation is much bigger than that, but, you know, you're quite right. It's not just the gland that needs the iodine. But let me say this. Mm-hmm. When you give somebody iodine, when I take iodine, I can't change that hogging mechanism that the thyroid uses. It will grab 80% of whatever's coming through. So if you throw 50 milligrams of iodine, trying to get your ovaries, <laughs> who got the first share and how much iodine did that gland get? The average adult thyroid gland contains 15 milligrams. That's the total amount it contains. Now, if you've got this gland that can't stop itself, you know, it's kind of the, the, uh, the big eater at the buffet, you know, it can't stop itself from grabbing 80% and you throw 50 milligrams at it, it's, whoa, uh-oh, I've seriously overeaten. I am seriously, I don't know what to do with this much iodine. Yep. And, you know, th- there's a whole mechanism that, that gets triggered. And we can, we can talk about that, if you like, about what happens to some individuals when they've eaten too much at the iodine buffet table and the, and the clan got hit. You're yeah. trying to get the breast or you're trying to get the, you know, the um, ovaries, but you're going to bombard that thyroid on the way. Okay. I mean, might as well talk about it. So what happened? So what happens is there's two things and, and these, you know, phenomenon have been really comprehensively described in science. So again, you talk about cure zone and things like that. And I say, yeah, look, I'm a person of science. That's my training. And that's my job is to keep coming back to the evidence and say, do we really have the evidence to know what's happening? And I think we do with iodine. We do know what happens when the gland gets bombarded by way too much in a short period of time. There are two different mechanisms. The first, and they've just got kooky names, so you just have to let these one roll over the top of your head. But the first one is called something called the Wolf-Chaikoff effect. Okay. Now, the Wolf-Chaikoff yep. effect is basically the gland goes, oh my goodness, I've got milligrams way, way too much iodine all of a sudden, what will I do? And we're imagining, of course, the gland has you know, cognitive capacity here. But yeah, I like how you're characterizing the, yeah. the gland. That, that helps. <laughs> yeah. so this gland who we're saying is the big eater at the buffet. This gland goes, oh, my goodness. If I was to turn that all into thyroid hormone, I'm going to be in trouble. Mm-hmm. Because too much thyroid hormone is fatal. There's something called thyroid storm. If I changed, converted that all into thyroid hormone, 
I would threaten my survival. So the Wolf-Chaikoff effect is a almost like a shutdown. The gland says, whoa, too much iodine. I am going to shut down. And what it does is it drops, rather than increasing, rather than fueling better thyroid hormone levels, it actually switches off thyroid hormone production. It says, no, it's too dangerous because if I keep going, I'm going to make too much. Now, this, you know, some people will say, oh, this has been shown in rats. My patients aren't rats. Mm-hmm. I've got patients who have absolutely demonstrated wolf Tchaikov over and over and over again. And what that means is in those milligram contexts, not for every individual but for some, what's happened, like you were sort of describing perhaps a little bit for yourself, is their TSH has gone sky high. That's that signal coming from the brain. And their hormone production has actually dropped drastically. Mm, dropped, that happened right? with me. Okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. So I okay. have these patients who come to me and say, gosh, I feel worse. Now, I didn't put them on the milligram doses of iodine. That yeah. had been their own doing or someone else's doing. And we look at the labs and I just go, of course you feel worse. Your thyroid has shut down. Now, the comeback to this is there is a phenomenon called escape from wolf Tricoff. And that's what you touched on before. You said some people or physicians will say, write it out. You know, you, you'll get over this. You know, they'll, if you keep going with milligram doses, your thyroid will then kind of recalibrate, switch back on and, and exhibit benefit. Now, that is a phenomenon that has been shown as well. So you can imagine one's called a wolf Tchaikov and the next one's called escape from wolf Tchaikov, right? So it's literally saying, I went into shutdown, but then I got over it, you know? Mm. But this is not a given. This doesn't happen in 100% of people who go into wolf Tchaikov in the first place. And again, I can show you case study after case study where women have persisted and it just got worse and worse and worse. And in fact, I have several um, instances where they actually developed Hashimoto's. So not only did they not have Hashimoto's in the first place, but if we bombard the gland with iodine, the other thing is it increases the, uh, it's, it's a term called antigenicity. What it really means is it alerts the immune system the more iodine you have in your gland, the more we're kind of waving a red flag at the immune system going, look over here, maybe you should attack us. So the, the really bad end outcome of megadose iodine when it's not done appropriately is you actually can induce an autoimmune thyroid disease. And again, I've seen that. So, you know, this is really important to understand. Yes, some individuals will get over that shutdown and then kind of recalibrate but that's not a guarantee and I don't know about I I hear a lot of patients who are told to go away and come back in three months I've seen people develop real problems in three months that you shouldn't just sit and wait and keep taking the mega doses I don't think it's really safe or beneficial certainly not in terms of thyroid health and in terms of preconception care Okay, um, can you define megadose? Like, what's the range of what okay. you consider megadose? Okay. So, 
when I, I guess really when I'm talking about megadoses, I am talking about the, you know, Brownstein's theories and Brownstein's protocol and a lot of people that follow that probably are talking about anywhere from 12 milligrams up to 50 milligrams. Mm -hmm. Now, these are milligrams. We have to remember that the RDA or whatever the, you know, the benchmark is in your country suggests that adequacy, and I'm not putting this up there and saying this is infallible, but they're saying that adequacy is, you know, for a non-pregnant female is 150 micrograms. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're talking about hundreds of times the amount that a lot of, you know, nutritional researchers and a lot of research have come to deem adequate. So I think megadosing for me is really when we're talking about those, you know, 12 milligrams, 30, 50 milligram sort of protocols. Yeah. But what about for a woman once she is pregnant? Because um, uh, Dr. Fletch, just when I was talking, he says that he recommends, I mean, and it, it seems like he just had sort of a standard dose, but I don't know, I'm not in his practice, but he said um, that they model it after Japanese women who are taking 12 and a half, 13 milligrams. And I'm so glad you mentioned this. Okay. Everywhere that I speak in the world, I say, when I'm presenting, I say, now before anybody asks, because I can hear, hear you all thinking it, you know, when I'm talking about being very careful about large doses of iodine, I always say, now, before everybody asks, what about the Japanese? Right. And I say, you know, I go, I'm just going to hit that one head on. I, I get so agitated when I hear this because I think, how much literature have you read on, have these people read and I'm not referring to the people listening to my talks, I'm talking about people who are saying we should emulate the Japanese. I just go, how much literature have you read on Japanese health, particularly thyroid health, um, and on their perception of their iodine problem? Okay? In Japan, okay. it is well recognised from a public health perspective that they have a number of health issues as a direct result of excess iodine. I'm like, what, what, where, why are people not reading this? Why is there so much selective reading going on? Such I, I want to talk a little bit more. I think, uh -huh. first of all, uh, when people say the average Japanese woman eats, I go, okay, um, okay there's a lot of variability in Japan uh, with their diet, with their iodine intake. There's no doubt that the diet is notorious for being uh, – containing concentrated iodine sources because they use kelp-based soup stock. That's where the iodine principally comes from. Um, even though we're told the average Japanese woman, you know, or the average Japanese person eats around seven milligrams of iodine per day, when you actually do studies of their intake and you measure their intake and you measure their urinary iodine excretion, the, the, the variability is enormous. And it's probably the seven milligrams is the upper bracket. It's not the average, right? Mm -hmm. it, it's kind of the more extreme consumers. The other thing is, uh, you know, the um, as I said, it's recognised as a public health problem in Japan. They say we have problems because people consume too much iodine. And in fact, I've got a beautiful paper that I often bring to conferences, which found that they talk about when they see thyroid problems in women in the first trimester, 
And what the thyroid problems are that they're describing is just this underfunctioning. It's just, you know, the TSH is a bit high and the T4 and T3 is a bit low. You know what their recommendation is? And this is a public policy. In Japan. In Japan. Okay. What, what all is endocrinologists it? recommend, they tell them to stop consuming so much iodine. Hmm. And I go, yes, because this whole sort of notion that one nutrient in exorbitant amounts is going to be fabulous for everybody really just betrays the sophisticated nature of nutritional biochemistry. It's like, you can't do that. You can't do that and not throw out a whole lot of other, uh, you know, mineral balances and, and, you know, physiological processes and things like that. So I really want people to hear when people, when they're told that, or oh, this is what the Japanese do, it, it's really a misrepresentation of what's going on in Japan mm-hmm. and what their health concerns are. There are major issues with thyroid in Japan and it's, and largely it's the result of iodine excess and that's well documented. Wow. So, <laughs> Okay. Well, I'm glad we're having this conversation because I mean, I I don't know, like I said, it's a controversial subject. There's a lot of information going around. There's books, research papers, um, and such, and um, people are confused such as myself, I guess, of, of what, you know, what the truth is. When I had my thyroid workup and my TSH was at whatever 4.9, I said, well, what about iodine deficiency? And then the it was another practitioner and we're having a conversation. She said, um, she goes, that's so rare. I said, but that's, that's so contradictory to what's out there. And I go, but what about the, the iodine? I guess the loading test is that, is that the correct? She goes, yeah. oh, those are, those are highly inaccurate. And I was like, oh gosh. Okay. I, I mean, what's your feedback? Okay. On that? Look, I, I, one of the areas that I've particularly researched and written and spoken in is about iodine assessment and, mm-hmm. you know, you know, poor Charlene, the controversy's just started. Let me tell you, if if we want to get really controversial, let's talk about assessment. I think one of the greatest frustrations, which is what you just experienced firsthand, and I feel very acutely, is say for us in a country like Australia, let, let me go back one step. All minerals are going to be impacted, like our level of minerals, Um, our dietary exposure is going to be impacted by where we live because they're influenced by geography. So we can make vitamins, animals can make vitamins for us. You know, we we can make all the other nutrients, but minerals, they either exist in your soil or they don't. And the amount that they represent in the soil, that's our deal. That's what we're going to get. So across the world, we know that there are areas that have... um, very poor iodine content and therefore their population is very vulnerable to iodine deficiency and then there are areas that have very high iodine content not so many but they're, they're they do exist and in a huge country like australia we have both so we have areas that are considered uninhabitable which i just think is hilarious because of course people live there because the iodine content is so low in the soil and in the water of that area that the who would say that's not fit for human living. And then we have some much smaller regions in the north of our country where the the levels are very, very high in the soil. So iodine is really affected by your location. 
So when the person says to you, oh, iodine deficiency is so rare, you know, we would kind of wash their mouth out with soap in Australia and say, well, actually, all the data suggests that it's incredibly common in Australia. Um, and I'm sure in certain parts, you know, in certain parts of America. Um, so the first thing is when we are sitting here in Australia and we say we've collected all the data, there's been a real concerted effort in the last mm, 10 years to capture what the state of affairs is around iodine. And that very high level evidence says we've got a problem. And then you walk into a GP. If I walked out this door and I walked into a GP and I said, look, I think I've got an iodine deficiency. What are you going to do for me? How do we assess that? That GP will say there's no test. Right? Mm -hmm. And I go, oh, my gosh. You know, here's this ridiculous situation. The way that we have tested in the research is through urinary iodine concentration. So we've collected a urine sample of everybody, measured the amount of iodine in there and been able to say these people are on the low side, these people are okay. But the take-home message from the researchers and the public health authorities and, you know, the, the medical association is that that's okay to use in a population, mm. but it's not accurate to use one-on-one. -on -one. So I go... So we've got all these women who want to get pregnant. Iodine deficiency is a barrier to that. We know that. There was a beautiful study that I think just came out of the UK this year, which found, lo and behold, just low iodine seemed to be impairing fertility rates. And I go, yes, of course it is, because you need normal thyroid hormones to mature eggs. You need good thyroid uh, function to maintain the pregnancy through the first trimester. If you don't have good thyroid function in the first trimester, you get very high rates of miscarriage between weeks four and week eight. That's really early. A lot of women would just think, oh, it just didn't happen. You know, I was barely pregnant. But in fact, what this could be alerting them to is that there was, an, there was a thyroid problem underneath. Mm -hmm. And that thyroid problem, of course, could be secondary or, or the result of iodine deficiency. So we've got this ridiculous conundrum. We know that iodine deficiency is not rare. It really does happen. It depends largely on your geography, but also on your diet and then some other things. But if you walk into the general practice anywhere, you're going to get told there's no real way to test this. And you go, well, what, what a silly situation is this? So my perspective, Charlene, and I've worked long and hard on this, is that we shouldn't throw the baby up with the bathwater. I understand when the real research specialists say technically, you know, statistically, you shouldn't use urinary iodine in a one in an individual. It, it's a tool that's good for measuring the problem in a population. I understand why they say that, but I have to go. I'm a clinician. I need to assess this woman in front of me. I need to know right now whether we're okay or we're not. So I still use urinary iodine. I use a random sample, which is the, the mainstream collection method. So no, no loading, no nothing. So we just do a, a random collection of um, iodine, but it's not so, of, of urine, but it's not so random, okay? 
some of the big things that get missed, and I think this is why we're being told it's not accurate for the individual. One is that there is a diurnal variation in iodine content in your urine. So what that means is, even if you didn't eat all day, the iodine amount in your urine would change, and that is because it reflects thyroid patterns and thyroid mm. hormones change over the day. So I always say to women, we, we make this urine sample not random at all. It has to be first thing in the morning. It has to be in a fasting state. We collect it at the same time and in the same scenario every single time. So we're comparing apples and apples every time. And the other thing that I do is we make sure that in the same urine sample, which most labs do, they measure something called creatinine. That just means that we are not going to be tricked by a really uh, strong dehydrated kind of urine or tricked by a really dilute urine. So I can correct that result, that iodine result and say, well, based on the concentration of urine, you know, how much iodine were they really pumping out? So, so that's the first thing. The second thing is I never use urinary iodine on its own. Okay. okay. So urinary iodine, what, the iodine that we find that we're measuring there in your urine is just a reflection of what you've consumed over the past three days. So you're saying, well, how helpful is that? It doesn't necessarily tell me about a longer period of time or about how my thyroid's going. You're quite right. It doesn't. All it's telling me is if you ate a representative diet over the last three days, where are you sitting? You know, is this working for you? Is this not working for you? Okay, that, that's what I'm checking in with. It also gives me some sort of measure as well to sometimes you pick up unexpected things like somebody who seems to be eating lots of iodine and it's not coming out and you go, well, yeah, that's weird. Okay. So then you have to look for other explanations or somebody who didn't realize or didn't think they were consuming a lot of iodine, but by seeing the urine result, you think, oh my goodness, where is this coming from? And we have to go back and do a bit of detective work. So, but what we do is we put that urinary iodine result and say, okay, that's reflective of the last three days and what they've been consuming. And then I look at their TSH and I look at their T4. Okay, so TSH being the, the basic communication between the brain and your gland. The more that, that brain is screaming, as in the louder that, or the, the, the greater that TSH number is, the more likely it is that the gland is calling out for iodine. Now, that's not always the explanation, but again, I'm not looking at one thing on its own, I'm piecing it together. So I would look at urinary iodine, look at TSH, and then look at the T4 level. Now, here's something that's born out of my experience. You can't make thyroid hormone without iodine. It's a non-negotiable ingredient, okay? So when I see women and they could present with anything, you know, they might be doing getting ready to have a baby, they might be in other circumstances. But if their T4 level in a woman is, you know, 15 and over, I would find it really unlikely that they're iodine deficient extremely unlikely that they're mm. iodine deficient because you just go, well, how did they make a T4 of 15? 
how how is that possible? Because all of that's loaded with iodine. The gland regulates itself. If there was a deficit there, it would not be putting out that much T4. Mm. It just wouldn't. And as I said, this is born out of not only my experience, but all mm -hmm. the literature that says that the gland is very adept at regulating itself. So if there was a deficit coming in, if every time the the gland is going to the buffet table, there's not a lot of iodine, the thyroid starts to modulate how it behaves. And one of the things it does straight away is it starts to drop the T4, okay? It does not produce or release nearly as much T4. So if I'm sitting and looking at a woman's results and I go, well, that T4 is 15, even 14, I'm going, I don't think you're iodine deficient. You couldn't make that much. You wouldn't be pumping out that much. You know, so whatever the rest of the evidence says, we have to sort of make, reconcile all those pieces of information to form, a, you know, a really balanced opinion. Okay, I have a question. So when you're testing the iodine levels on a woman, you've already done a thyroid workup and there's some indication, either low T4, that's making you go to the next step. Like the, the iodine test is not, you're not doing it across the board for everyone. No. It's, no. it's only based on that thyroid panel that that's makes right. you go. Okay, got it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Because I think that the iodine test on its own is misleading. You know, you go, well, it only represents the last three days. And do you know what I mean? Like yeah. I do get that. It, but, but I do think that there's a place for it. Like you say, if I thought, oh, that TSH is a bit high, all that T4 is a bit low, then I would say, well, what is your iodine doing? You know, are you really getting as much as you think you are? And uh, what, what more is there to this story? Got it. Okay. Um, let's talk about, okay, so... I mean, most women, I think, who are having fertility issues, hopefully they're getting a full thyroid workup. But I, I think in most prenatals, I mean, don't 100% of prenatals have iodine in it? And is that sufficient? If Okay. Um, I mean, it's sufficient or it's not because it's still an individualized thing as we were talking, but. Yeah, um, spot on. So so again, I'm going to speak from from you know, an Australian perspective because we just have so much information over here because it is such a big issue for us. Um, we, so I'll just give you a really quick recap so everybody understands why, you know, we're, we're sort of here. When I grew up, you know, I'm talking long time ago, Shelley. When I'm I grew sure. up, oh, <laughs> we all had um, uh, iodized salt on the table. If mm -hmm. I talk to any one of my generation, we all go, oh yeah. Yeah, me too, yeah. Bar. Yeah. Uh -huh. The lady okay. with the little girl with the umbrella in the that's blue it. box. Yeah. Okay. That's it. Because in Australia, it was public health policy. Mm -hmm. In Australia, from the 19, I'm going to get it wrong, but prior, somewhere around the 1930s to the 1970s, we knew we had a major iodine problem. So we said, okay, everybody eat iodized salt. And then in the 1970s, that public health message fell away and nobody ate iodized salt anymore. And um, then, as I said, in the last 10, 15 years, kind of the public health um, organisations in Australia have kind of woken up and gone, oh, my goodness, we've got that iodine problem. It didn't go away because we're still living on the same land. So, and, you know, nobody's eating iodized salt anymore. 
So this re-inspired all this new research and information gathering. Okay, how big is the problem? Okay, the problem's really big, um, you know, and particularly big in pregnant women and women wanting to get pregnant. So the next step in the data was, uh, okay, what are we going to do to fix this? Well, they'd given up on the iodized salt plan. What they decided was that they were going to put it into use IDs iodized salt in our bread so mm. all commercial bread in australia is fortified with iodized salt they thought okay this will fix it they then you know it's kind of medicine for the masses you know we can't teach people how to look after themselves so we just you know we'll just dispense it so what happened then was uh we're now getting the data in which is looking at post fortification okay how did that change things for women not much is the answer, mm -hmm. the, particularly pregnant women. Then, the, you know, a study that was published in 2016 said, okay, post-bread fortification in women also taking a prenatal formula, right, mm -hmm. which had, um, you know, good levels of iodine, uh, a, a minimum of 150 micrograms per, per tablet of the prenatal formula. Did that fix it? Okay. And when they looked at this particular group of women, fortified bread plus a prenatal, they found that there was still about 30% that were deficient, pregnant women. So we're going, right, a prenatal will certainly be enough and the answer for some. But for some individuals, it just is not enough of a gap filler, okay? Because to still leave 30% of pregnant women deficient is, is pretty outrageous, really given that we've now got it in the bread sure. women who are conscious enough mm -hmm. to take a prenatal formula as well. Or, yeah. So I think, I think what you said is, you know, it, it is that always that individualized question or, you know, individualized management, you know, will prenatal cut it for, for most people for a lot. It, it's great that their prenatal contains um, iodine for some women that just won't be enough. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I could see that that really um, starts a cycle. Um, let me see if I can put it all together. I mean, it seems like we're not doing a lot of times, um, not full thyroid workups are happening and TSH is just tested. Um, I may get lost in a thought, but I don't think, I think that women can kind of go along for quite a long time and be that 30% that are quite iodine deficient and, and Absolutely. get that corrected, right? Absolutely. Um, yeah. And I think the other thing, you know, um, when we're talking about pregnancy, fertility, reproductive health, you know, iodine is so immediately relevant because as we said before, we know that without enough iodine, it, it may be your barrier to fertility. It may be your barrier to, to conceiving. Uh, we know that, you know, that, that, that with those very subtle thyroid problems, these are not big thyroid issues. This is not somebody who goes, oh, damn, I've got hashies in the first trimester of their pregnancy. These are very subtle thyroid issues that uh, increase the risk of miscarriage fourfold, fourfold mm -hmm. in that weeks four to eight. So we know that, that not attending to the thyroid, first of all, we know that, like you said, there can be thyroid problems that go under the radar all the time and there can be an iodine deficiency that goes under the radar. It's very, very easy to miss. But it could be a major thing that, that's our undoing. 
Mm -hmm. uh, when we get past that first trimester and so a woman says, well, that's great. I managed to conceive. I managed to hold the pregnancy, you know, to keep that baby during the first trimester. If that woman was iodine deficient, you would be none the wiser unless you run the labs, right? Because mm -hmm. what what's really a couple of things about this and one that was probably the most alarming sort of light bulb moment for me was that I thought, okay, what, what does iodine deficiency do in pregnancy? Well, we know that the worst outcomes are that, you know, and these are severe, these are generally not seen uh, in, even in Australia, mm -hmm. is something called cretinism. So the baby mm -hmm. will be born with mental retardation as a result of impaired neurodevelopment. So we're not seeing that. Even as bad as our iodine problems are, we're not at that level in Australia. Come back a step from that, what are the outcomes for the offspring? We know reduced IQ, hearing impairment, increased rates of ADHD. You know, there's all these things that we might just go, oh, this is who he or she is, not knowing that actually it was an iodine deficiency during the pregnancy that, that set up this stage. The other things is we know, the other things are that we know that there are poor pregnancy outcomes, delivery outcomes for women uh, when there is an iodine deficiency. So, you know, th there's so many levels at which this iodine deficiency is going to uh, play a part. But going back to my light bulb moment, which was in pregnancy, in the first 12 weeks, you supply all the thyroid hormone to your baby, right? Mm -hmm. So you want, in the first 12 weeks, you want your T4 levels in particular to be looking pretty good because that's the hormone that's getting transferred across the placenta and then the baby's doing their own conversion, so to speak, or the placenta's doing its conversion through to T3. From week 12, the baby makes their own extraordinary concept right so the fetus is making their own thyroid hormone from week 12 all the way through to term that so you go okay pressure's off me in terms of t4 mostly but where's that fetus getting the iodine from from me so i now need to have not really peachy t4 levels i've got to have an iodine level an iodine I can give this fetus to make their own thyroid hormone from week 12. In uh, the mum, I said to you before, the thyroid is very adept at regulating itself. So it goes, oh, there's too much iodine, I'll shut down. Oh, there's not enough iodine, I'll do this. You know, we see all these compensatory kind of processes going on all the time with thyroid function. So let's take the mum who gets to week 12 and her iodine is a bit suboptimal. Her gland says, that's okay, so to speak. I'm now giving the gland a voice, Charlene. Uh, the you. gland says, that's okay. I will, <laughs> I will make less T4, okay, which is what we talked about before. So that T4 level will drop off a little bit. But it's all right, I've got your back because I'm going to make sure that we have enough T3. Now, for those of your listeners that know about thyroid, they'll know that T3 is the real deal. It's the thyroid hormone that is the most active, the most potent, okay? So your gland says, oh, I haven't got enough time to make, I haven't got enough iodine to make T4, and T4 is a bit weak anyway, so I'm going to put 
as much iodine as I can into this preferential supply of T3. That will be better. That's better for you, mum. Now, for the mum, quite right, it is. Mum goes, thanks very much. I'm not feeling ridiculously fatigued. This is how it slips under the radar because, you know, my T3 is okay. Here's the scary light bulb moment. The fetus, their thyroid has no capacity to adapt. Okay, the fetus is going, I need iodine. I'm going to make T4 and T3 in set ratios. I can't change those ratios. I don't have any compensatory ability yet developed to deal with an iodine deficiency. So you can have what we call a euthyroid mum. So mum's labs look okay. She's not feeling particularly bad. But you can have a hypo thyroid baby or a mm. hypothyroid fetus. Right. Uh-huh. Yeah, I've been reading about that and I was like, how does, okay, that's, okay, that's how it's happening. That's how it's happening. Yeah. And so like I said, for me, that was this kind of real horror moment where I went, oh, we've really got to get onto this. You know, it, it's really about, when I say get onto it, it's okay, it's the preconception period, but it's, for me, it's checking a woman's labs, her TSH, her T4 at each trimester and saying, and her urinary iodine and saying, are we on track? Is there enough for you and for your baby? Is there enough for you and for your baby? And, and you know, there are many researchers that agree with that, that say absolutely that's what we should be doing each trimester, checking in again. The problem is research doesn't always sit well with let's say public health or, or medical practice because it's expensive. No one wants to, you know, their patients to come in every trimester and get, you know, mm. a small spot of labs because it's expensive. But is it best for us? I would argue absolutely. Mm. You know, is it, is it the right thing to do for the best outcomes? Yeah. Okay. So let's, let's pause for a second because um, I want, I'm, I'm just putting my, myself in the shoes of someone listening right now and, and I don't want their head to kind of spin. Um, I mean, kind of the takeaway message and correct me if I'm, I'm missing it is that, um, well, one, I think, you know, you need to be working with a functional or integrative practitioner kind of lives in this world. Um, you need to have a full thyroid panel based on that thyroid panel. There's going to be certain indicators, uh, high TSH, low T4, that's going to make them think, huh, maybe we should check your iodine levels. And then based on that, then dosing requirements are made um, because it's not one size fits all. Because uh, there's, like you said, in Australia, about 30% of the population who needs more iodine than is found in prenatals or in just normal diet. And now, question about salt. Um, when I was interviewing Dr. Fletches, he was saying, well, um, he was like, just get sea salt with iodine. But I also read from another source that a lot of the iodine evaporates from salt. And then that isn't even really a sufficient source for the rest of us yeah. that are severely iodine I, deficient. I think that um, there's a lot of Again, there's there's a lot of kind of Chinese whispers that go on about um, about iodized salt, and uh, a lot of them are, are misplaced. They're not quite correct. I think one of the biggest 
barriers or oppositions I've heard to using iodized salt is because iodized salt contains aluminium, as mm. all table salts do, actually, because aluminium he said, salt. He said sea salt. He said sea yeah. salt, not table. Yeah. So, so sea salt will probably still have an aluminium level oh. in it because it's what stops it from clotting and, and um, caking and, and things like that. But, you know, you'd have to check your particular product. Um, so I hear people say, oh, well, you wouldn't want to do that because aluminium's uh, bad and it's not good for your thyroid, which, you know, aluminium in very high doses is, is bad for your thyroid. Um, and then I hear that kind of this quantum leap to, you know, of the iodine in... Uh, in the iodized salt won't work. <laughs> uh, how, how does that happen? So uh, let me just set the record straight in that regard. Iodized salt, as you know, Charlene, is the global intervention for iodine deficiency. It's used in so many countries around the world. And when you kind of asked me this question beforehand, you know, does iodized salt, you know, work? I was, you know, I was having a bit of a chuckle to myself and I was like, well, millions of Chinese, Bangladeshis, Tibetans, Australians, etc., would tell you yes. Like, you know, mm. you can't look at the data from these countries where they've introduced iodized salt and go, it doesn't work. It does. You know, mm -hmm. it massively increases their iodine exposure. And, and, you know, and iodized salt is on a whole different level. I don't know where all your listeners are, but in Australia, we've got great excitement around Himalayan salt, you know, and I always, sure. again, a little bit of a chuckle yeah. about Himalayan salt because I say to people, you know, uh, just Google Himalayan region goiter um, because the Himalayan area where this salt apparently mm -hmm. comes from is notorious for iodine deficiency. So if you think you're going to get iodine out of your Himalayan salt, think again. Uh -huh. It's not really in there. So iodized salt is a reasonable vehicle. It is a good intervention for iodine deficiency. Okay. Is it the only thing that I use, is it perfect? Is it, no, it's, you know, it, it's bigger than that. We want women, we want everybody to eat a diet that contains iodine from different sources, from saltwater sources. It has to be from the ocean, not freshwater. Um, that's where your seaweeds and your you know, uh, fish uh, and your seafood are going to be the richest in iodine and, and really give uh, a significant contribution to your iodine intake. There used to be a good iodine supply coming through from dairy products as well, but that was because the dairy industry used to actually clean all the milking equipment uh, with, mm. with iodine-based sanitizers. Now, right. amazingly, that 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 had a knock-on benefit for humans. Most of the dairy industry has stopped doing that now. And we've seen, again, we've got data which shows milk before uh, in terms of the iodine content and the iodine content in milk now, which has radically dropped. Um, so that's a shame. Uh, so, you know, for most of us, we are still looking to the ocean to, to really get the bulk of our iodine supply. But absolutely, iodized salt has a place in there as well. Okay, great. Because, yeah, I was kind of probing Dr. Fletches because I was reading about the high dose and he, he definitely wouldn't go there, though, though he mentioned about the Japanese studies of 12 and a half milligrams. But he was like, no, iodized salt, that should be sufficient. So um, I, I think he wanted to stay away from the controversy around that. And, you know, he wasn't seeing a patient one on one, so he's not going to give out that kind of information. Um, uh, you know, I was reading 
somewhere, and I know that it's more complex than this, but they were talking um, about um, there's some people with, you know, autoimmune diseases such as Hashi's who are told stay away from iodine. And um, someone was saying that like that iodine, um, you know, like antiseptic qualities that has a, it has a kill off quality inside the body. And so um, that is part of the bad reaction with autoimmune diseases is, is it's killing off the virus, but it could do it too rapidly. Is that, is there any I'm not really sure. I'm not sure about the validity of that. I mean, there's mm -hmm. no doubt that iodine is an antiseptic. You know, we used to use it to clean our water when we were traveling and it would taste awful. But yes, you know, yeah. we used to do that, paint our, you know, cuts and sores with it. We still do in Australia. Uh, so, you know, there's no doubt that it's antiseptic. It's primary antiseptic action really happens in the gut. So, mm -hmm. you know, uh, how much iodine behaves as an antiseptic when it's not on your skin in or in the gut is, mm -hmm. is debatable. Um, I think I am very cautious. If, if you were, if you're listening to this and you go, I have Hashimoto's or I have Graves, and we'll talk about Graves separately because I think it really does not require separate um, mentioning. One of the things I was going to say to you before, Charlene, and, and I just skipped over it, was when I was talking about, you know, this is the way I would assess iodine. I would do urinary iodine. I would do TSH. The other thing that I always put in there, and I don't know, it should be reasonably accessible for your listeners too, is thyroid antibodies. Mm -hmm. Now, the reason why I put thyroid antibodies in there is very specific. There is one type of antibody. So there are basically three types of antibodies to, against the thyroid, roughly speaking. There's one type called thyroglobulin antibodies. So they're thyroglobulin antibodies. And most medicos do not pay them much attention because they're not the major one associated with an outcome, right? They're not the, the pathway to Hashimoto's necessarily on their own or, or the pathway to Graves. But what's so interesting about these antibodies is if you have them, and a lot of people do, then to me, this warrants caution around iodine mm -hmm. this would put my patient in the microgram rather than the milligram camp because that those thyroglobulin antibodies they go up with more iodine that's just what they do so you're going to increase your autoimmune problem if you give more iodine to patients who have these so a lot of Hashi's patients have those. And I think that's one of the biggest cautions, you know, for me around that. But I, I also have patients who don't have a diagnosis who have those, but I've seen them get worse with iodine treatment. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, I think it is good to be, uh, you know, very mindful about what your individual risks are. And those thyroglobulin antibodies for me are a real warning sign. Graves patients, again, different schools of thought you'll have, all sorts of people telling you, ah, you know, high dose iodine still fine for graves. I would argue to that it's not, and that you should stay away from it, uh, because in graves' disease, of course, what we have is unchecked excess thyroid hormone. So you give more and more iodine to that, you're, you're going to potentially feel a real problem, and it certainly has been shown to trigger relapse. 
you know, in, in patients who have Graves. So I think we do need to be cautious in those two groups. Okay. That was a great interview. Um, I feel exhausted. Much more like, no, not exhausted at all. I feel more like, I don't know, moderate in my thinking of iodine. I, you know, it, it's like sinking in for me and, um, I get it. And like what you were saying in the beginning, there's people who are like mega dose this and you're going to feel fantastic. I'm like, I want those results, but it doesn't. And, and I know that there's a lot of fallacy in, in that type of thinking. Um, but you know, sometimes you get a little desperate or, or, or in fantasy land about things. But um, I, I feel like you brought a lot to the table and really explained it and, that's Very, great. Yeah, in, 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 a, in a great way. So thank you so much. So anyways, I, I'm going to interview you next month, I guess, about worms, right? And yeah. I, hope, I, hope we can, I hope we can keep that light and, and some actionable steps too, because anytime there's like parasites or worms, it's just sort of, you know, it's kind of heavy. No, look, worms are very, um, they're, they're, they are a pet topic of mine, pardon the pun. And um, <laughs> They're so relevant to, to women's reproductive health. People are going to get a lot out of the discussion. And I promise we'll keep it light. I promise okay. very clear take-home messages. Oh, um, good. It's going to be a real eye-opener for people, for sure. Okay. Are we going to be just, you know, like, who was that naturopath that wrote that book about parasites? Uh, Hilda, Hilda Clark or something? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh my God, you read that and you basically want to live in a bubble. You were so grossed out after that. No, no. I mean, there will be gross moments for sure, but, but there'll, be much more, there'll be much more light at the end of the tunnel. I yeah, think. basically how to protect ourselves that we all can be hosts to different things and, yeah. and how to- Host the okay. right thing. Yeah. Okay, good. All right, thank you so much and uh, I look forward you, to talking to you in a couple weeks. Yeah, great. All right, okay, I'll thank you, Rachel. There. I really appreciate it. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Fertility Hour. For being one of our loyal listeners, we would like to give you free access to a special report called Restore Your Fertility Naturally. Inside, you'll learn about an eight-step, all-natural process that's helped hundreds of couples conceive. This is one of our most popular reports, and you can get free access by going to fertilityhour.com forward slash report. Again, that's fertilityhour.com forward slash report. Go there now, and we'll see you on the next episode of the Fertility Hour.